Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I think that uh, tonight is particularly special because it's a very special year. This is the year of the 60th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights, and this particular lecture kicks off a year of looking at uh, the importance of that. Our first speaker is one of the great human rights and justice advocates of our time, literally of any time. Tonight is also the opening, as I mentioned, of our conference, because human security is much more than a right. It's a basic requirement for human development. And the Institute for Peace and Justice is electric with wisdom and passion, both in this room and with what's coming up, to spark us onward. And we have the right person tonight to integrate security, development, and human rights discussion for us and open those doors. Louise Arbor's career is one of commitment and action on this front. Hers is a model for simultaneously humbling and inspiring us, uh, all of us working in peace building. And that includes everyone here, our students, our faculty, our staff, and all the people who've joined us. Teaching law at the leading Canadian civil liberties, uh, teaching law, leading the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, she joined the High uh, Court of Justice, the Supreme Court of Ontario, just 15 years after receiving her law degree. She moved on to the Court of Appeals for Ontario in 1990, and many in this audience who are working for gender justice appreciate the challenge she took on in 1995 when as president of the Commission of Inquiry, she headed an investigation on a prison for women in Kingston, Ontario, exposing the abuses there. A year later, she became the chief prosecutor of the war crimes before the International Criminal Court Tribunal for Rwanda and the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. She was recommended by just the right person for that job, none other than the first chief prosecutor, Justice Richard Goldstone, a member of our IPJ, International Advisory Council, who many of you know from his residency here. The Honorable Louise Arbor again showed her medal, and in 1909 she, was, she indicted President Slobodan Milosevic, a strong, controversial move that proved to be exactly right, both as a statement about upholding uh, people and making them accountable, and also pushing a peace process. A year later, she returned to Canada, newly appointed to the Supreme Court. Following the tragic death that so many here in this room know about of Sergio Vieira de Mello in 2003, she was appointed to the UN High Commissioner for, as High Commissioner for Human Rights in 2004. She just finished her four-year term. Once again, she's shown the world tenacity and ethical courage and a commitment to human rights for all. This has not always made her popular. Uh, States and individuals have had their backs up over decisions and statements exposing those who wanted to be treated with less stringent, less balanced responses. They protested and grumbled and threatened. Certainly when she stated that those in positions of command and control could be subject to personal criminal responsibility for their actions in the Israeli-Lebanon conflict, there were some wide worried eyes. The same was true when she criticized democracies along with regimes of tyrants. And while it happened far less, about one out of seven times, some countries we know and love were exposed. I think that regardless of our country of origin, we know that her assertion that nobody is safe when leaders who have the capacity to do massive damage on a population are guaranteed impunity is the reality we must confront when seeking human security and human rights for all. 
Louise Arbour is a determined advocate for the adoption of international human rights standards, and she speaks for many victims around the world. Our distinguished lecturer is a beacon for peace with justice through upholding human rights and having accountability. Please welcome Honorable Louise Arbour. Thank you very much indeed, ladies and gentlemen. I am truly delighted to be here, and I'm very honored to have been invited to deliver this very prestigious lecture. Um, I should maybe at the outset um, put a few uh, caveats. As has just been indicated, I left my post, finished my mandate as United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights at the end of June of this year, and... um, I, at that point, was delighted that for the first time in my professional life, I was regaining fully my freedom of expression. Uh, Both as a judge and as a human rights advocate, I have fought all my life for the broadest possible scope of freedom of expression, but I've always been working in environments in which, by the nature of my work, my own freedom of expression was somewhat curtailed. So as of the 1st of July, I was enchanted Uh, to have regained my freedom of expression. This lecture tonight is one of the very few public uh, engagements that I've undertaken since leaving my post, and I have to confess to you that despite all this exhilaration, I can't really think of anything really outrageous to say, (laughs) even though I thought I would. I thought I would be saying enormously outrageous things, but when I look at my prepared remarks. They don't seem particularly outrageous. Um, I should also maybe tell you a little story that was told to me very early in my academic career and has led me always to accept speaking engagements only when they're followed by question and answer period, just on the off chance that I'm a bit off topic, which this anecdote will explain to you why I've been petrified most of my professional life about that prospect. One of my uh, colleagues, when I started teaching law, was uh, interested in human rights issues. And this is way before the days of easy email communication. So he was contacted by telephone from a very far away country and was invited to come and speak at a conference. The conference was going to take place in a totally irresistible location, maybe the Maldives or some exotic place, and he was very keen to go and wasn't all that worried about the topic. He was very keen to participate. So the phone connection was not very good, and he said, yes, yes, I'll come, so what are you expecting of me? And they said, well, we'd like you to speak for 20 to 30 minutes on breastfeeding. So he thought, well, human rights is a broad topic, and the Maldives is a country I'm very keen to visit. I can do that. So he said, yeah, all right. Then he was a bit petrified and prepared himself extensively. And when he arrived at the conference, the, uh, the panelists, they told him it's a panel, the panelists were introduced, and then when it came to his turn, the presenter said, and now Professor so-and-so will address you on press freedom. <laughs> So, (laughs) 
I have prepared a few remarks on the general topic here of human security. I hope that I'm on the right page, but <laughs> if not, you'll just have to bear with me, and then in the Q&A period, I may get back on topic. Um, let me also say that uh, even though I've been here essentially just in the course of today, I already feel very much at home. I've been extremely well received, and I've had brief but intense opportunities uh, to meet some of the, uh, the women engaged uh, in the peacekeeping program, uh, some members of the faculty, and I feel very much at home, and I hope this is the beginning of a relationship that we will be able to pursue in the future. Uh, I also feel very much at home <laughs> um, because you have, of course, invited in the past many of my old friends and colleagues. In fact, I was surprised when I looked at the list um, to see so many uh, names of old friends and colleagues, including, of course, uh, Mary Robinson, uh, Jan Egeland, Garrett Evans, Lloyd Axworthy, Shirin Ebadi, and, of course, as Dee mentioned, I'm particularly pleased to um, follow once again in the footsteps of Richard Goldstone. So um, let me now maybe turn to my uh, prepared remarks, not on breastfeeding, but on human security. <laughs> uh, in light of my very recent departure as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, I seize, of course, opportunities like this one to try to reflect in very broad terms, to distance myself from the day-to-day -day operations of that office and reflect in very broad terms about the effective pursuit of human security, particularly within the uh, United Nations system. So let me maybe one, try to clarify one thing at the outset, because I find that there's often uh, a lot of confusion that takes place when we talk about human rights and security. Fundamental rights and freedoms are very often described as opposed or contrary to the pursuit of security interests. For instance, in the law enforcement world, uh, you often hear that human rights impose constraints on the pursuit of security objectives. Now, in the most outrageous form of that viewpoint, it is argued, for instance, that the prohibition against the use of torture, which, as you know, is a, a fundamental human rights that is enshrined in the Convention Against Torture, and it's a norm of customary international law, but it's still argued at times that the prohibition against the use of torture stands in the way of effective pursuit of security interests. Now, contrary to that position, I think it's important to assert at the outset that security is a fundamental human right and that the obligation of states to offer basic security to people under their jurisdiction and control arises from their obligation to promote and protect the right to life and security of the person. So at least when we're talking about human, human security, not state security, our conversation, I think, is very much about human rights. So let me now turn to the way the United Nations is equipped to support states' obligations to enhance human security. In 2005, then-Secretary-General Kofi Annan published his, his report entitled In Larger Freedom, which served as the blueprint for the outcome document of the 2005 World Summit. The expression in larger freedom, of course, comes from the UN Charter, and it embraces a vision of human fulfillment predicated on the fundamental ideas of dignity and equality for all members of the human family. 
The Secretary General report also asserted, to my great delight as at that time High Commissioner for Human Rights, that the UN architecture rested on three pillars, security, development, and human rights, and that the three pillars were interlinked. In fact, his words have been quoted very often. He said, there can be no security without development. There could be no development without security, and there can be neither security nor development without human rights. Now, as time went by, I became somewhat skeptical about this architectural metaphor of the three pillars. In fact, as presently constructed, if indeed the United Nations rests on three pillars, in my view, they are of unequal structural strength. The security pillar is made of concrete. It's rough, it's strong, suitable for military-type operations. The development pillar is made of steel, durable, sustainable, to use development lingo. The human rights pillar, in contrast, in my view, is made of glass. Fragile, invisible most of the time, decorative at best, supporting nothing, and therefore requiring only the occasional buffing to make sure that, if seen, it would look good. Even though the United Nations has a long history of engagement in security and development issues, clashes occur frequently among member states about the proper course of action in these two fields, security and development. These clashes at times paralyze action in the Security Council or lead to inconsistent and inefficient fieldwork by a variety of poorly coordinated UN agencies who work, broadly speaking, on development issues. But nowhere more than in the field of human rights does the ambivalence of member states express itself. And this is so, in my view, for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the comprehensive human rights agenda uh, that is articulated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and in the UN Charter and in leading human rights treaties and in international customary law is a legal and political framework that imposes internal constraints on what a government can do to people, in particular to its own people. So not surprisingly, the enforcement of that framework by international actors, like a high commissioner, is quickly viewed as an infringement on state sovereignty and an interference in the internal affairs of a state. This is particularly so in countries that very conveniently confuse the interest of the state with the interest of its current government, which in turn can be easily confused with the interest of a, a particular political party, or in the most extreme cases, with the personal interests of an entrenched head of state. Secondly, despite the assertion in the Universal Declaration for Human Rights that all human rights are universal, interdependent, and indivisible, in reality, not all rights are championed with equal vigor even by those states, like the United States, who purport to embrace a very strong human rights culture. Economic, social, and cultural rights, the right to health, to food, to education, to shelter, are not accepted as rights, but as mere aspirations to be realized as a byproduct of a healthy market and decent democracy. In contrast to civil and political rights, which are often promoted by Western countries 
in a manner that is denounced as imperialistic and self-serving by poor developing countries. Finally, there are many more technical reasons flowing from the above. The nature and evolution of international law, from first interstate law to law that now reaches persons directly, like human rights law or international criminal law, has not yet fully matured. The growth of international and regional institutions with increasing enforcement uh, capabilities and the globalization of a culture of rights moved by an ever more sophisticated NGO community operating at the international level, all these are still perceived as an affront to state sovereignty. In short, the glass pillar of the UN architecture is very much in the process of trying to reassert itself as a truly indispensable feature of the legitimate quest for human security. And it has much to offer, but only if its champions are prepared to acknowledge the necessary linkages between security and development and embrace human, right, a human rights vision that is truly universal, encompassing all rights equally for all people. It's interesting in this context to explore the promise and some of the shortcomings of the emerging doctrine of responsibility to protect, which I think is a topic that has been discussed in this um, institution in the past and is still very much, I think, at the forefront of a lot of international um, discussions on the issue of human security. As you know, the doctrine was born in the aftermath of the NATO airstrikes in Kosovo, initially as a product of the International Commission on Intervention in State Sovereignty, which introduced the concept in its 2001 report, and somewhat surprisingly, that doctrine was endorsed in very specific language to which I will return by the General Assembly in the outcome document of the World Summit in 2005. As endorsed in that document, the doctrine views security in a very traditional framework which I suggest links it again to civil and political rights. Climate change, the food crisis, natural disasters, global epidemics such as those created by HIV AIDS and uh, anticipated by the avian flu, all these are posing security issues that emphasize, in my opinion, the importance and the relevance of economic, social, and cultural rights and are not at this stage clearly conceptually embraced by this emerging doctrine of responsibility to protect. In a nutshell, that doctrine, as articulated in this outcome document in 2005, expresses the primary responsibility of states to protect their people, and I quote, from genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. It then provides, of course, that if states are unable or unwilling to discharge that responsibility, the responsibility then passes to the international community, which must intervene through a serial process involving prevention, reaction, and rebuilding phases under the authority of the United Nations, and in particular of the Security Council, if and when it has to come to coercive action. Now, I will return to the sequencing feature in a moment, but first let me look briefly at the scope of the responsibility as stated in that document. In light of its historical linkage to the doctrine of humanitarian intervention, which posited an often unwelcomed right to intervene militarily 
to curtail a humanitarian catastrophe. The responsibility to protect was carefully articulated to stress not the right of the prospective intervener, but the responsibility of all states, primarily, of course, the state affected, to protect their people and to be supported in that effort and to be supplemented if they failed. Now, I am concerned that too much emphasis is currently being placed on individual state responsibility as if to mask the less popular aspect of the doctrine, its most controversial aspect, that of the collective responsibility of all member states of the UN to take timely, appropriate action, not just to support a struggling state, but to overtake a defaulting one. Reduced to the responsibility of states to protect their own people, the doctrine, in my view, doesn't do much except to reconstruct the concept of state sovereignty, from a protective shield for state action to a bundle of responsibilities and obligations. But unaccompanied by any form of compulsory enforcement, let alone sanctions for default, this reconceptualization doesn't yield much hope for improvement of the plight of those supposedly entitled to state protection. There is no hiding the fact that the bite of the doctrine is in the collective responsibility of the international community acting through the United Nations to extend directly their own protective support to those who are abandoned or worse, who are targeted by their own government. And yet again, neither the uh, outcome uh, of the World Summit document nor, frankly, the thorough expose of the doctrine by the original International Commission that looked at it are very explicit about the nature of that responsibility. I must say that, in my view, the most significant advance in terms of real prospect for real protection is in the transformation of the right to intervene into the responsibility to do so. And I think the language is very significant. I've made this point in, uh, at length in a lecture I gave uh, last year at Trinity College in Dublin, but in short, Here's how the argument goes. The right to intervene in the internal affairs of another state in the face of a humanitarian crisis implies that the intervening state has a choice to intervene or not. That's what having a right means. The exercise of a right is discretionary. One may choose to intervene or not. And in fact, when the intervener chooses to act, it will often be perceived to coincide with its self-interest. And when it chooses to exercise its right not to intervene, it will merely be an exercise of a rightful option. And this, of course, would apply to the international community as a whole. It could choose or not to extend a protective hand to people in need. That's under the doctrine of humanitarian intervention, the right to intervene. Under the responsibility to protect doctrine, this is no longer so. There's no longer a right, a discretion to intervene, but a responsibility, an obligation to do so in certain defined circumstances. Now, this is a monumental conceptual shift, but it's still lacking in clarity about the exact nature of that responsibility. Is it merely a moral or a political responsibility? Uh, if so, it would still carry a considerable element of discretion in the sense that the consequence 
The consequences of failing to meet a mere moral obligation may not be very severe. But what if we're talking about a legal obligation? Then I believe that the responsibility to protect opens a truly new era in the pursuit of human security. But there again, I think a reality check is necessary. The legal obligation to prevent genocide is expressly articulated in the Genocide Convention, which will be 60 years old, actually a day before the anniversary of the Universal Declaration, that is on December 9th of this year, uh, and it's a norm of international customary law, but still very few efforts have been made uh, since it was enacted 60 years ago to endorse it as such. So this brings me to a second aspect of the doctrine, responsibility to protect, as articulated in the 2005 World Summit that I think we need to examine. A debate emerged relatively early as to whether the responsibility to protect was couched in terms that were too narrow. As I mentioned to you, it's restricted to protection from genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and ethnic cleansing. So many argue that this was the proper approach if the doctrine was to have any real application. They claim that to the extent that it posits a role for the international community to intervene directly in the internal affairs of a state, the doctrine had to be focused on a restrictive set of the most egregious threats to life, thereby ensuring its viability and its relevance as a framework for international action. Others questioned whether this narrow focus was not once again a mere reflection of a Western-style preference for the protection of civil and political rights over economic and social rights. In many human rights circles, questions were raised about the responsibility of states to protect their people, their populations, from disease, famine, the effects of natural disasters and of extreme poverty and deprivation, particularly if those deficiencies were rooted in discrimination. On what basis was state responsibility, national or international, to be restricted to what in effect amounted to international crimes, rather than reflect the broad range of human rights obligations either voluntarily undertaken by states by treaty or imposed on them by international customary law? The debate was not only theoretical, I think as was evidenced by the world's reaction to the attitude of the government of Myanmar in the aftermath of Cyclone Yargis. French Foreign Minister Bernard Kouchner, who had been a very strong proponent of the previous doctrine of humanitarian intervention, which is called in French le droit d'ingérence, the right to interfere, uh, invoked very early the responsibility to protect doctrine at the time of the cyclone in Burma to suggest that the international community had to reach the victims of the cyclone directly in the face of the inertia of the Burmese government. In a classic case of making the theory fit the facts, some who argued had argued for giving a limited scope to the emerging doctrine were now arguing that the non-action of the government of Myanmar could be said to amount to a form of criminal negligence, thereby making it a crime against humanity that would then fit squarely within the emerging doctrine as currently articulated. I don't think it's necessary, frankly, to solve here this doctrinal debate. If anything, it illustrates once again the interlinkages between development, human rights, and security, between freedom from fear and freedom from want. 
Many of the conflicts that have flared, in particular in Africa, in the past decades are rooted in a multitude of human rights deficits and generate the widest variety of human rights violations. It ranges from arbitrary arrest to forced evictions to the particular vulnerability of women and of marginalized groups everywhere. Security can therefore no longer be viewed as either threatened or ensured principally through the use of force. In that sense, the preeminence of the Security Council, the primus inter paris of international institutions, should no longer be viewed as the sole form through which the international community can extend its protective umbrella to persons in need. The 2005 outcome document envisages a crucial role for the UN in the application of the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. In fact, if we were to apply an intelligent institutional design to match the different phases of the doctrine, prevention, reaction, rebuilding, existing uh, institutional candidates emerge and present shortcomings are readily exposed. First, the Human Rights Council should be the preeminent forum for early warning and prevention. This new intergovernmental body was mandated by the General Assembly in 2005 in the same World Summit to promote universal respect for the protection of all human rights and fundamental freedoms for all. The Council, in my view, should therefore monitor and respond to both acute and chronic human rights situations through its regular and special sessions, as well as through through its new procedure of universal periodic review under which the human rights record and performance of all countries, starting with the Council's own members, will be considered at regular intervals. Now, this blueprint for action by the Human Rights Council has yet to translate itself fully into the current reality. As you know, the Human Rights Council was created effectively in 2006 after the demise of its predecessor, the much maligned Commission on Human Rights. The Human Rights Council is still a political body, and it behaves very much as such. It consists of 47 member states of the UN, elected by the General Assembly, and the 47 seats are allocated under the immutable principle of equitable geographic distribution, as a result of which 26 of the 47 seats are reserved for Africa and Asia. Although it was contemplated at the time of its creation that states would compete for a seat on the Human Rights Council, and that they would have to make pledges and commitments as part of their campaign for election, and although it was hoped that members of the Council would vote in their individual capacity, with their conscience, so to speak. In reality, the elections are rarely competitive within each regional group, and the members of the Human Rights Council tend to vote along group interests, whether regional or geopolitical. These interests rarely coincide with the optimum human rights approach to the issue at hand. So I think for the time being, it's safe to say that we have an institution that could serve an important prevention, early warning role in the cases of serious threats to human security, but it's fair to say that the institution mandated to do so has yet to live up to its full potential. And I would dare suggest that membership that the membership of the United States in the Human Rights Council would go a long way to enhance the relevance of the Council 
and could assist in moving it in the right direction. Now let me turn to the second UN institution prominently featured in the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. The reaction component of the Responsibility to Protect Norm fits very squarely within the range of diplomatic, dissuasive, and coercive measures that the Security Council is empowered to deploy, assuming that the situation has reached the point of constituting a threat to international peace and security. Now, once again, there are serious impediments to the the Security Council discharging effectively that function, one of which is, of course, the existence of the veto power of the five permanent members um, of the Security Council. Now, you may remember that a major part of the Secretary General Reform Initiative, which led to this 2005 World Summit document, was, of course, the reform of the Security Council. That part of the Secretary General's effort was unsuccessful, but it generated useful ideas about ways to enhance the legitimacy and the effectiveness of the Security Council in the area of human security. Some of these ideas have been re-articulated I think in a, um, very well in a recent article uh, in Foreign Affairs, the September-October issue of Foreign Affairs by Morton Abramovich and Tom Pickering. Without going back to the thorny issue of the membership or composition of the Security Council and the issue of whether or not an increase in permanent membership should or should not be accompanied by a veto right, changes could be made without having to amend the UN Charter simply by developing a consensus among the current uh, permanent five members about the appropriate use of their veto power. And in the same way, the authors argue that even a relatively modest contribution by the permanent five members of the Security Council to peacekeeping operations, which they currently uh, do not do, would go a long way to enhance the credibility and effectiveness of peacekeeping operations, particularly in cases of emergency. Now, all these discussions, I think, should be encouraged as political solutions are more within our reach than formal institutional reform. Here again, however, a change of culture consistent with our collective responsibility to respond to humanitarian crisis is not on the immediate horizon. Now, third, there's a dual set of institutions in the UN equipped to handle the responsibility for different aspects of the rebuilding phase of the responsibility to protect doctrine. You'll recall it has a prevention, reaction, and rebuilding phase. The Peacebuilding Commission, another new institution that the UN reform process in 2005 created, has the mandate to facilitate post-conflict recovery, and it should be ideally suited to identify the institutional reconstruction and economic development aspects of the responsibility to protect norm in the longer term. Multilateral justice mechanisms are also available to the international community to address the punishment component of reconstruction. Uh, As the International Commission had noted, a major new element in the international community's protection armory is international criminal justice, which has been and can be activated when domestic systems fail or collapse through which perpetrators can be both deterred or and held to account. Now, having said all that, let me stress that the sequencing of action from prevention to reaction to rebuilding is much more an intellectual construct 
than a likely scenario in reality. The reality of conflict management doesn't always lend itself to a convenient chronological unfolding of responses. For instance, advocates of responsibility to protect often stress correctly that the doctrine is not only, not even mostly, about military intervention. Much of it, they say, is about prevention. Well, this is a very confused response. Military intervention is a tool expected to be used very much as a last resort, but in my view, it could be an appropriate tool even in the prevention phase of the doctrine. For instance, in the face of an impending genocide or crimes against humanity of some magnitude, everything else failing or being unlikely to succeed, prevention could require military action. And in the so-called reaction phase, that is when the crimes that the doctrine, the doctrine seeks to prevent are actually being committed, the necessity to punish cannot be pushed back to the reconstruction phase. The call for accountability and the hope of personal criminal responsibility serving some specific deterrence function, all this calls for the earliest possible investigation and prosecution of war criminals. This, of course, triggers the unresolved debate about the alleged conflicting purposes of peace and justice initiatives, and many will argue that punishment should be deferred always to the reconstruction phase of the doctrine and should not interfere with the protective reaction efforts. I disagree, as I believe that justice serves a protection function and that in the sequencing of response to conflict, justice delayed is still justice denied. Again, it's unnecessary to resolve this debate here, but it's important to understand the breadth of this emerging doctrine and to think it through as we uh, now seek to operationalize it. The responsibility to protect norm is part and parcel of a new vision of human security that the World Summit leaders uh, agreed to in 2005. Whether it will make a much-needed contribution to increasing human security and therefore to peace and equitable progress depends, frankly, much more on UN member states' political will than, than on any further theoretical refinements of the doctrine. But it depends also on building within the United Nations an institutional infrastructure capable of effectively implementing the doctrine's prescri prescriptions. And for that, the full participation of the United States will be critical, not only within the Security Council, where it occupies with four others a privileged position, but also within the Human Rights Council, where by choice it occupies currently no seat. And for the U.S. to make the contribution that it can, should, and must make to a more secure and a more just world, it will have to re-embrace the fundamental tenets of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights. On the eve of the 60th anniversary of the Universal Declaration, the fundamental concepts of universality and indivisibility of rights may be coming closer in a world in which security issues are no longer to be associated principally with the Cold War or the threat of nuclear warfare. The combination of catastrophic natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina or Cyclone Nearges and the negligence, ineptitude or worse of governments has highlighted the dramatic impact 
of poverty, discrimination, and social exclusion within countries and between countries. The profound insecurity created by deprivation is at the heart of the unfulfilled promise of globalization. Even in sophisticated democratic societies, political play alone is unlikely to offer adequate redress. The law, and human rights law in particular, offers the blueprint for an integrated view of human security guaranteed by individual rights and collective responsibility and state as well as individual accountability. The current shortcomings in the distribution of responsibility between national states and the international community, in my view, can be no better illustrated than was done by Jeffrey Gentleman in the August 10th edition of the New York Times um, in an article entitled Darfur Withers as Sudan Sells a Food Bonanza. The journalist exposes the booming Sudanese food export industry while the country is the recipient of billions of pounds of free food from international donors. And while the World Food Program, which often gets donations in cash, cannot meet all its requirement for the Sudan by buying food in the country because the government makes more money exporting it than selling it for domestic consumption. This, one might say, begs the question, why is the World Food Program buying food from the Sudanese government to distribute it to the people of the Sudan? Doesn't the government of the Sudan have a direct responsibility to feed its own people, the international community intervening only if and when it is unable or unwilling to do so? And why are governments like that of the Sudan willing to let the international community discharge its obligation to protect by feeding the people of Darfur, but it's not willing to let the international community discharge its broader responsibility to protect the people of Darfur from rape, killings, and displacement? The answer might lie in part within the pernicious dichotomy within, between civil and political rights and economic and social rights reflected in the World Summit's articulation of the doctrine of responsibility to protect. It rests also on the age-old difficulty of equating in-law crimes of omission and crimes of commission. We may therefore need to articulate with better clarity the basis on, on which violations of economic, social, and cultural rights may constitute crimes against humanity. Just as it took very serious jurisprudential efforts to ensure that rape is properly prosecuted as a crime against humanity and even in appropriate circumstances as an act of genocide, gross violations of the right to food, to health, to shelter, whether by direct action or by criminal negligence, should come to find their proper, proper place within the emerging doctrine of responsibility to protect. I would hope that every effort would be made bo both by international and domestic prosecutors to fully explore the scope of the law defining crimes against humanity so as to give the fullest possible effect of the right to life, which is the cornerstone of both major international human rights covenant, the covenant on civil and political rights, and the covenant on economic, social, and cultural rights. Now, I suggest that this will require a holistic approach to security, first and foremost emphasizing human security over a nebulous and convenient claim of national security. 
and a genuine commitment to the imperatives of equality and universal entitlement to the protection of the law. In democratic society, what we ask of our elected governments is that they design and adjust at all times laws that will ensure the proper balance between our desire to be safe and our desire to be free. As people and as communities, we essentially ask ourselves, how much of my freedom am I prepared to sacrifice to enhance my security? In a perversion of that question, often fueled by unarticulated political interest, some people who don't think of themselves as vulnerable to abuses, abuses of power often hear the wrong question. They hear, how much of the freedom of others am I prepared to sacrifice to enhance my own security? The answer then is a lot easier, but the result is perverse. This is where enforceable laws must supplement and support democratic ideals. And this is indeed the genius, in my view, of human rights law. The rights of every individual are enhanced, not reduced, by the enhancement of the rights of others. And conversely, every one of our fundamental rights and freedoms is diminished by the curtailment of the rights of others. Ultimately, both our freedom and our security are best ensured by the enhancement of the freedom and the security of everyone else. In that sense, the imperatives of indivisibility and universality of rights have real practical implications, the most important one being that rights must be enforceable and that they must be promoted and enforced by law. As I've indicated earlier, whether historically alleged humanitarian interventions were clearly such or whether they were a mere disguise for the pursuit of cruder forms of self-interest, they remain a deficient tool for the enforcement of human rights. Even in dramatic and large-scale threats to the right to life, humanitarian interventions as we knew them before the articulation of the doctrine of responsibility to protect put inadequate emphasis on life as an enforceable right. Uh, in the wake of the opinion of the International Court of Justice in the, the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina versus Serbia and Montenegro, I think we are witnessing the important fleshing out of the legal obligation to prevent genocide while we built on the political commitment to expand that responsibility to related international crimes. Ladies and gentlemen, in conclusion, and before I take your questions to get on topic, I suggest then, in conclusion, that a legal landscape is emerging under which peace and security will be enhanced by the ascendance of an international legal order that will not supersede the political, but that will further constrain political action that imperils human security. From the articulation of the doctrine to the advocacy necessary for a broad-based political endorsement and the setting up of institutions, uh, of institutional and operational support, there is a considerable distance to go. But frankly, the biggest steps have already been taken. They've been taken at least 60 years ago by the framers of the United Nations and by the framers of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Our task is merely to give it an air of reality. Thank you very much.
you so much. Um, and now we, we have questions. We have people in the audience to collect uh, little notes. We will uh, get them up here and be able to ask your questions. Again, those of you who are in overflow rooms, um, please uh, pass your questions along. And while we wait for our first questions, what I thought I'd like to start with is, given your travels, given your experience during those four years, um, and your own base with, that, with what you call the legal landscape, exploring that, um, are you optimistic or discouraged at this point? Do you find any place uh, where you see responsibility being assumed in a way that would model a sense of possibility for us to uh, proceed? For what it's worth, and if it's of any encouragement to anybody, I am actually optimistic, but maybe it's just my nature and it's not based on any empirical foundation as to why uh, I should be so disposed. You know, I, I believe that at any particular point, well, first let me back off and say, I think that, that women have a particular take on these kinds of issues. Uh, I think we are um, not easily discouraged by the concept that um, as humans, um, we, we have to spend a lot of time just sort of cleaning our immediate environment, and that this is not a sign of defeat. It's not because we don't get up every morning to build a cathedral that we are in a state of regression. A large part of being human consists of cleaning our nest and making it comfortable for ourselves, for our families, for our, our clan, for our broader community. And that is a good thing. That is, in large part, very much just what is expected of us. So I think you become... Uh, pessimistic when you set uh, an unrealistic, very high bar uh, for human accomplishment. If we can reduce conflict, which, I mean, statistically we have, the number of raging conflicts has diminished. If we can address seriously the gross inequities that I think are a stain on our collective conscience, the gross uh, inequities in the distribution of the wealth of the planet within countries and between countries. Uh, this is something we accomplish, I think, in a, on very much on a day-to-day -day basis. If we make little progress on any of these issues, I think we have cause to believe that we're moving in the right direction. Let us hope. Um, in the fact that there are democracies who are not holding up their responsibilities, as well as tyrants, as well as these regimes of tyrants. Which is more distressing to you, to see a democracy not upholding these standards or to um, see th th that there are th these regimes, and there will always be, as we have with our many women peacemakers around the world, countries that seem so far off track? Which, which is the greater challenge to us? Uh, well, again, it depends what is it we're, we're measuring. If it's a sense of sort of personal disappointment and almost betrayal, it's true that we are hugely disappointed when we see an erosion, uh, particularly an erosion in norms, not only in behavior. And frankly, I think what has happened um, in recent years in the United States, uh, where the government is expressing ambivalence vis-a-vis, -vis, for instance, the use of torture or what amounted to torture, was causing enormous distress, I think, in the human rights community that felt if we can't even maintain the terrain that has been, uh, the gains that have been made over the past 60 years on agreeing 
on norms, how can we possibly seriously believe that we will uh, increase our capacity to enforce these norms? And how can the United States continue to occupy the strong leadership advocacy role that it has occupied for such a long time if it uh, is so easily discredited by those who are just looking for a pretext um, not to, to follow the path? So, but at the end of the day, I find it very difficult to make comparisons. Um, you know, is our human rights violations more severe in one country than another? The answer is probably yes, but I don't think it particularly uh, helps. For instance, I've never been uh, a great champion of the idea of a kind of ranking of human rights performance. I mean, uh, if we ask ourselves, are human rights sort of more respected today in Mauritania or in Sweden? I don't think it's going to do any good to either the people of Sweden or Mauritania to answer the question. In my view, the only relevant question is to ask every state very clearly, are you today in a state of uh, uh, regression, stagnation, or progress vis-à-vis your own capacity and your own history and human rights record? That's a relevant question. And that's a question where I think on that kind of test, it's quite surprising who would occupy the first place. Okay, and just two more before we, we finish up. Well, this one says, my name is Patrick, and uh, I think he's from Uganda. My question is, in Uganda, the Lord's Resistance Army victimizes the subjects, and yet the leaders of the rebellion fear to come to an agreement due to, uh, due to fear of the International Criminal Court and the potential for their arrest now. And so um, the subjects on whom the Lord Jesus pray are still victimized. How can the Human Rights Commission help in this case, or how can something change this case? Well, you know, on that question, I would question the premise of the, of, of the question, which is that the LRA, the, the leaders of the LRA, uh, refuse to negotiate uh, a ceasefire or, or a longer-term peace agreement because they're afraid of the International Criminal Court. Where have they been in the past 20 years? They weren't at the table, and there were no indictments against them. In fact, I think the ICC withheld, uh, for some time, you know, giving peace a chance, uh, withheld its, its uh, indictments in the hope that the, the peace process would, would advance. So, frankly, one has to ask, is this just a pretext for not making a deal that they don't want to make in the first place, or is this a genuine concern? And if it is a genuine concern, well, there are not a lot of options. The option that they would like doesn't exist anymore, which is not to be held accountable for anything. That one is no longer feasible. So if what they're saying is we would rather be tried for crimes against humanity in Uganda, that is an option. But it's not one that's up to them. It's up to the ICC. and So they are... Um, Options, But the option, the one that they would like, which is never to have to account for their 20-year murderous rampage, unfortunately, that one is not an option anymore. Thank God. Okay, I have a question here. This is be the last one from Alec uh, Howard. So what can young people do to make human rights a fundamental pillar of the United Nations and the international community? What do we do as young people? That's not me asking. Um, 
I do. I really. You know, there are times where I wonder how challenging this must all look because I think young people today are confronted with so much more information and so many, at least, theoretical options. But how to materialize these options in reality is a little more difficult. I think we can't be of every good fight. You know, there are times where I look at what I've done and I think, you know what, I feel really badly because I've never been seriously engaged on issues related to the environment. Well, that's true, but I was really busy. Um, and I can't, you can't let yourself feel inadequate because you can't save the planet in all its aspects. I think you have to pick your fights and really commit. Then you have to show solidarity with the others who are picking the other good fights. Uh, you have to be, I think, a, a good citizen. You have to, the obligation to inform yourself. But as to what kind of um, work plan um, should you have, I can't say. I can't even figure out how young people <laughs> figure out what these options are for them. Uh, but again, as a general position, I'd say you pick one. Don't feel badly you can't do them all. Uh, make sure that others do them all, particularly your elected leaders, um, and, uh, and believe in, in solidarity. You have to belong to a group that is moving with you towards this better world. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.